And welcome to another edition of the Beervana Podcast. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Patrick. Here we are back in the world headquarters of uh, the Beervana Podcast. <laughs> Otherwise known as your dining room. <laughs> well, we've been off site the last couple of times, so here we are back and back at home again. Well, well, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, so we're back back into the to the cozy confines of your of your dining room, Beervana headquarters, uh, surrounded by beer swag as always. It's true. And we have a new feature. Our neighbors installed a chicken coop right outside the house. So if you hear the chickens clucking out there, that's... Oh, no, that's a bird. The, or, I was, was going to say, they almost did it on cue. So those, <laughs> that was a crow, I think. Those are the new chickens of the pod. Yes. Uh, so we have dogs of the pod, and now we have chickens of the pod. Dogs of the pod at my house and chickens of the pod. Yes. I used to have... My backyard neighbor used to have ducks. Um, I remember that. Which are kind of noisy, but in a really, I always found them incredibly amusing. Yeah. Every once in a while you hear, quack, quack, quack. That's hilarious. But they've exchanged them for chickens. So. Which are less hilarious. Which are less hilarious, yes. I find not as much amusement in chickens. Um, but we are in Portland, Oregon, which has to be the backyard chicken capital of the world. Absolutely. <laughs> so welcome, Jeff, to, <laughs> to the world of backyard chickens. Uh, okay, so uh, as always, with me is... Um, uh, Jeff Allworth, author of The Beer Bible um, from Workman Publishing, author of Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books. Uh, he blogs at Beervana. Uh, he has the Beervana Bog Facebook page. Oh, and we should mention that the Beervana podcast is now a part of the All About Beer on Air, uh, which is a collection of podcasts. Um, and um, we will continue to uh, continue to post our podcast now after we've some technical issues. We're going to continue to post our podcast at at our own iTunes and Google Play site, SoundCloud site, um, and then we'll mirror it over at the All About Beer site as well. So you have two ways to listen to us. That's right. And we are uh, hoping to professionalize this and actually get some sponsors and advertising. So if you would go on the uh, iTunes and be sure to subscribe and maybe like it, that would be cool. Um, and if you are if you are a potential advertiser. Well, so I was about to say, more importantly, <laughs> if you want to sponsor us, Hey, <laughs> yeah, that's right. The underscore beer acts at yahoo.com. We will go. set you up. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can just go ahead and um, pledge right now. Uh, yeah, so uh, thank you to All About Beer for hosting us. And uh, we're excited about this new par- partnership. It's not without its uh, little uh, bumps along the way, but I think we've got things sorted out. So uh, hopefully we'll now be back to regular scheduled podcasting. That's right. Uh, you should tell them who I am. Oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, you are... Patrick Emerson, a professor oh, of economics at Oregon State University and research fellow uh, at C-Micro in Sao Paulo and something, what is it in? IZA. IZA. Yeah, something uh, German in, about in, in, labor economics. In Bong. <laughs> um, and you are also back in school has started again and you kind of walked in here like Charlie Brown after losing a, a baseball game. Yeah, I'm cranky these days. <laughs> school has started. Uh, school in Oregon, actually... A lot on the west. A lot of the public universities on the west coast um, still follow the trimester system. Yeah. Uh, quarters. So we don't go back to school until the end of September, um, which is now. Uh, right. And so um, I'm back at it, uh, driving down to Corvallis. Um, but more importantly, because I'm uh, essentially department chair, I have to do all these bureaucratic tasks, especially at the beginning of the year, which are a drag. Yeah, um, but enough about me. That's... I would I would mock you for your uh, first world problems, but I actually know what departmental politics are like, and I, <laughs> I think you actually you deserve our sympathy. Uh, hopefully, this is my last year in the in the job, so I can move on and and just focus on drinking beer and doing research. Okay, uh, so today 
uh, we actually have a pretty fun pod, I think. Um, uh, we have a couple of special guests on the show. Well, actually, I should uh, clarify. You interviewed um, Mike Siegel, who is a brewer at Goose Island. Uh, his official title is Head of Brewing Innovations. Um, and uh, Goose Island and Mike have recently partnered with the brewing historian Ron Pattinson to make a, a historic type of beer, Stock Pale Ale. Uh, Stock Pale Ale was a robust barrel-aged beer that took on the character of Brettanomyces while sitting on wood. So um, you talked to them about uh, uh, doing this historical recreation. Um, we're going to listen to uh, bunch, a bunch of snippets from your conversation with them. And um, in front of us, we actually have a bottle of the uh, beer that they brewed, um, which you, I don't think, have tried yet. Is that correct? Totally correct. I have not had, tried it yet. So the great unveiling will happen live yeah, and in fact, on the Beer Vonda podcast, dun, 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 Ron and and uh, Mike wanted me to taste it with them, but I had hatched this plan to do the pod, and I didn't want to squander our big tasting moment, the that's, big reveal. That's so. right, dear listener, especially for you, he has <laughs> he has abstained, and today we get to open. Um, it's called Brewery Yard Stockpale Ale, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. Uh, before we get into our interview um, with Mike and Ron, uh, the news is next. Dee -dee -dee -dee. <laughs> Here, that, I like I like the uh, the look you gave me, waiting for my little. Where's our music? Well, when we get a sponsor, you know what? We can we can probably commission a little uh, news intro music. I don't I don't splice that right in there. If we get too classy, it's we're gonna lose everything that makes us uh, <laughs> worth listening to. We'll become less crap. That's right. Uh, no, no, no. People well, expect a certain level of crap when you listen to us. Our podcast is artisanal. <laughs> <laughs> Has all the uh, the rough character you expect. Yes, well done. We have that. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, news. So, Dads and Dudes Breweria. Is this right? That's, yeah. Breweria. I don't know. That was a weird name. From Aurora, Colorado. Uh, got permission from the Alcohol Tobacco... Uh, tax and Trade Bureau, whoa, okay, uh, to sell General Washington's Secret Stash IPA uh, made with CBD cannabis, which I guess CBD is the non-psychoactive component of marijuana. Right, there too. You, you know this. <laughs> you, <laughs> I, you're deeply embedded in the industry, so. Uh, yeah, let's not talk about that too, too much right now, although... Um, I will be having a marijuana podcast launch soon, so stay tuned for that. No, it's not, it's not really true. Um, uh, just, for, just for the listener's edification, we live in uh, Oregon, which now has a recreational marijuana uh, law in effect that decriminalizes or makes it legal. So there you go. Yeah, so there you go. And we have some contacts with people in that industry, but we'll, we won't go into that. What I, what I will say is that uh, the... Uh, cannabis has two active ingredients, so it has many, many. Like they're like hops, so they have uh, hundreds of compounds. But mm -hmm. two that are active uh, and do things. One is THC, which actively makes you stoned, and one is CBD, cannabidiol. I think is that pronounce how you pronounce it. Okay, um, something close to that. And it is the thing that is associated with many of the health benefits, uh, medical benefits like uh, antispasmodic um, and. Uh, uh, anti-vomiting and um, mm. it's an in, uh, it helps with inflammation so if you have arthritis or um, uh, anything like that it's supposed to help with that all of those of course not been subject to rigorous double-blind studies because it's illegal in the United States but that's what it's supposed to be good for and they put that into this beer which is kind of remarkable to me because 
the federal government has been adamant that there is no benefit in, in this at all. And this is like one step from a, at, this at least says that there's no harm in this, which is a half step in the right direction. The adamance of the federal government is amusing to me, considering they have basically prohibited almost all research on the, I know. the active effects of marijuana. <laughs> so we know almost nothing. Uh, so uh, yeah. hopefully that will change. I mean, marijuana is still a what, class one narcotic. Yeah, it's which, almost impossible to get uh, any to use for studies and to conduct studies using marijuana. So. And the definition of schedule one means that it has no medical benefits. But, uh-huh. So there's this weird uh, catch one too. Yeah, anyway. so this is very interesting. I'm I'm a little shocked that this got approved. I am totally shocked, and I I assume it's entirely a gimmick. But um, I think in this case, it's a gimmick with a potentially profound public uh, policy ramification. So I give him big props for it. Yeah. All right. Well, it'd be interesting to try it. Yeah. Uh, next news item. The next news item. Oh yeah, this is an interesting thing. Um, this has been going on for a little while, but a uh, news item came across the transom that I saw. Um, there's an old uh, brewery from Omaha called Stores Beer that uh, was in business from 1876 to 1966 mm-hmm. when it was purchased by Grain Belt. And I, I assume it existed as a brand for a little while, but but then finally went away. And the brewery in Omaha uh, is was gone. Uh, and it was recently announced that, uh, I guess the brewery probably announced it, that they're going to start, somebody got the rights to that, and they're going to start brewing that beer in Omaha again. Um, and it was a classic American lager. Uh, I think their, their, their flagship was called triumph lager. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing this happen more and more. Um, often it is craft breweries that revive old names. Um, in DC, there was right. something called Hugh Rich's lager. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could be mispronouncing that's made by DC brow. And when I was in, uh, Nashville at Yahoo, Yazoo doing my, uh, book tour last year, I noticed that they were making Gerst, which was an old Nashville lager, and they've sold it, and it's exactly the same kind of bottle, same kind of label. It's like the revival of Gerst. So these things are coming back and playing to nostalgia and and maybe coinciding with the rise in interest in lagers. I'm not really sure, it's, but it's an interesting trend. Yeah, do you know, uh, clearly they can they can grab the old logo and packaging and stuff, but are they trying to recreate the actual recipe or do they have the old recipes that they're using uh the one that uh stores mm-hmm. i went to the website and they are not recreating the recipe they're okay. kind of working with the recipe but but updating it right which i think is the right move yeah probably <laughs> well that's what i was wondering because <laughs> yeah. nostalgia might go so far <laughs> right and i think they are using um it looks like they're they probably they're they're using they're, they're remaking triumph and i think they're going to be using the same uh the old label uh, which I would assume you would want to because it looks cool. It right. Has that yeah. retro look. Cool. All right. Uh, oh, yeah. The last news item. Um, yet again, oh, we, we almost put a kibosh on all acquisition news, but um, this one's kind of interesting. So uh, uh, how do you pronounce it? I think Bostils. Bostils? Might, might Bostils, yeah. Okay. Uh, Bostils was purchased by ABI, so ABI is still um, going strong, but this one, um, uh, like their... Uh, 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 Hogarden and Leffe um, purchases a Belgian brewery. Uh, what do you have here? So they make um, uh, triple Carmelite. Carmelite. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Mm-hmm. Pronounce that one. Uh, Quack and Deus, which is a kind of rare beer that I have rarely seen, which is a sparkling uh, beer 
And uh, you, I, these are the, the first two are fairly common and fairly famous, and you see those around in stores. I'm sure most people will have seen those if they're familiar with Belgian beers. The mm-hmm. last one a little bit more rare. Yeah. So uh, this is interesting because, one, it's evidence of ABI's not just acquisition streak in the United States, but globally, uh, and a strong push into Belgian beers. But it's also not, um, I don't know how you describe it. So in the U.S., I seem to th- I think of their acquisitions as looking for these young um, upstart breweries that seem to have a good uh, chance to grow and create sort of regional breweries and regional brands. Right. Um, but these Belgian acquisitions are a little bit different. They're sort of decidedly small and boutiquey. And um, in this case, I don't know whether it's for reputation. It can't be too much for the bottom line. I think it could be for the bottom line. And this is my I made uh, some economic analysis here. I think I might have done it on the blog, but should probably confine myself to uh, Facebook because I don't want to embarrass myself. So let me bounce this <laughs> off of you. Um, the beers that they sell uh, retail for uh, at least five dollars, depending on where you buy them, and they range up to about ten dollars for a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, for the for the little bottles, they do uh, the three thirty milliliters, and they also have the um, the 750s, which sell for more, and the Deus is really expensive. It's like 35 bucks or something. And right. it's, it's like a champagne bottle. Um, and I think they make something around 120,000 barrels. Mm-hmm. Well, when you put 120,000 barrels in five dollar, five to ten dollar, uh, eleven ounce bottles, that's a pretty hefty. To add up. Yeah, that's a pretty hefty profit margin. It's especially the case if you, uh, you know, quadruple. You know, you bump it up to half a million barrels or a million barrels selling that. It seems like it's massive profit. Okay, well, that was my point, which is, so you infer that they're looking for growth property, so that they would like to see their their Belgian acquisitions grow. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I that's what I I do assume that because of of Hogarden and uh, uh, Lef, they the, these things are regularly available, and they're you know they're really pitched this upscale beers right. uh, especially left um they kind of conceal the fact that left is owned by them they i think there's some kind of glamour about uh monasteries which is typical for a belgian company right. Tri- triple carmelite is another one that's the carmelite is a order in in uh, uh, uh a monastic order and I, it somehow relates distantly to that so you know you you have these properties that have a lot of cachet and i think you push them out into higher end supermarkets and and bars around the world and get the big big bucks for them relative to other beers yeah so you so you assume that abi wants to sort of um that these are expansion opportunities to take these breweries and expand them and start producing a lot more output shipping these fancy belgian beers around the world and i do assume that and that could yeah. be a bad assumption but no no it's it's not necessarily i just i don't know why i think of belgian beers is sort of decidedly small and never going to be big or something i don't know <laughs> yeah i think they'll definitely try to keep that impression and there will be right. you know you don't want it to be if you if you swamp the market then that undermines your sense of exclusivity and then luxury product yeah. stuff you don't want to do it that way but um uh you know a million barrels worldwide is not going to make it you know, you're not going to see that in every pub that you go into it so yeah. it'll be fairly exclusive yeah okay uh well i think that ends the news um 
So let's turn back to our main topic. Um, as we mentioned uh, before, this is uh, last week, uh, Jeff recorded an interview with Mike Siegel, um, again, who is the head of brewing innovations at Goose Island in Chicago, and uh, Ron Pattinson, who is a, a British beer historian. Um, Ron Pattinson, um, for a long time, has uh, written about this stockpile ale. Perhaps you can talk more about his research and and uh, introduce the, the interviews. Yeah. A lot of people will, will be familiar with Ron because he's kind of a, a rock star among a certain nerd, nerdy set. He's, uh, he definitely requires um, a kind of academic bent to, to appreciate what he writes about because he's, he's, he's working with primary sources. Um, he goes, one of the things that, that he has done a ton of over the last decade or so is go into breweries and look at their brewing logs. And, mm. um, you know, there's, there, there are many accounts of how old beers were made. So he, he goes into the, the breweries and sees exactly how they're made. Right. Um, and these brewing logs are a little bit sketchy sometimes. So he has got, had to be come, uh, adept at being able to interpret what he's seeing. Mm-hmm. One thing about brewing logs is if, if there's something that all the brewery, all the staff know about, like if you always mash in at 149, right. Um, they're not going to mention that because it's, it's taken for granted. Right. So these are, these are sometimes fragmentary documents. Uh, so he has to backfill with, um, he does brewing. He's looked at technical brewing manuals, uh, over the decades. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so then these describe the, uh, best practices and general practices, uh, in whatever country he happens to be looking at. Right. Um, and, you know, over the time that he has been writing about this, a lot of the ways we think about these old beers has really changed thanks to the work that he's done. A lot of the assumptions, like they used to be assumed, one example, used to be assumed that um, Scottish beer was boiled for a really long time. Right. So he went back and looked at that, and it turns out it wasn't. Um, they were boiled about for about an hour. So right. it's not clear where that rumor came from, but, you know, he, he, so he can go back and look at a lot of these things. And then the other cool thing, which is relevant to what we're doing here, is... He's done investigations into beer styles that are no longer made, like this one, Stock Pale Ale. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it has made him uh, get excited about uh, reviving these things because as a historian, he's sitting there reading about them and there are no examples and you probably get curious about what they taste like. Yeah, I, I would too. So <laughs> he has done some homebrewing. He wrote a homebrew book about uh, how to revive some of these styles. And um, he, uh, in this case, partnered with Goose Island, which this is a, a barrel-aged style of beer, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because uh, Goose Island has this giant barrel-aging facility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes sense for another reason, which we'll touch on later. Um, the Goose Island barrel-aging facility has some bears some um, passing resemblance to some of these old breweries that, that made the stock pale ale. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and what I did was just when I it did this interview, we just walked through each part of the process um, and I have excerpted some clips, and we can listen to those and then have a little chat uh, about what we hear, and then we'll kind of just work, work through the interview I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, two notes on the technical quality. <laughs> uh, they, it's, it's, it's the crap you expect. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's, you, the artisanal, it's the artisanal quality you expect. That's exactly right. And regular listeners will be acclimated to our uh, shoddy production values. <laughs> Um, but if you're not a regular listener, we apologize. The, uh, the, uh, my recording equipment over the phone is not the highest quality. Um, and they were on a, uh, speaker phone as they were both, they were gathered around a speaker phone. So that, Oh, they were together. They were together in Chicago. Okay. 
so because Ron Ron is a, a Brit who lives in the Netherlands. Okay, and he was in Chicago, which is uh, I think for the launch of the beer actually, which right. was last week. Okay. So um, we spoke. So the first two clips we're going to play have this weird buzzing sound, and if you uh, it, it may irritate you, but stick with us because for reasons unknown to me, that buzzing sound went away and then it doesn't appear on on the later clips <laughs> and if you're listening to this podcast as you're on your commute no it's not a be a fly in your car that's so right you don't have to swerve around and try to find it <clears throat> okay uh so the first clip is um with uh ron and mike uh and let's listen to it now all right so how do you get from these brewing logs to a recipe that a person could make in the 21st century uh, it's a combination of things. Um, basically, the stuff that's not in the brewing record, and they vary. Some of them are, are much more detailed than other ones. Um, I fill in the gaps using stuff I've read from the technical brewers' manuals from the 19th century and the 20th century, which talk about brewing techniques, how you add the hop additions, things like that. So the, the stuff that isn't recorded in the brewing records, I take from those sources. So, yeah, some of it's filling in the gaps, guessing and, and, and to some extent. There's, there's always a, a degree of guesswork in there. It depends which brewery's records they are, how old they are, um, as to how much information you have. But there's, I don't think I've ever come across... Oh, well, yeah, I have, actually. Some of the Bartley Perkins ones actually have everything in. Um, some of those are really detailed, and they give all the options and the dry hopping and the priming and everything, and so really in quite a lot of detail. But there's other ones that are pretty sketchy. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, I'm not saying that these are... I, I, I never like to say to people that this is an exact clone of the recipe. It gives you some idea of what the beer would have tasted like. Right. Um, it's, it's never going to be an exact clone because you don't have the, the same um, fermenters, for one thing. Um, they had all these different fermentation systems. I mean, they don't have a union system here, so we couldn't run it through a union system, <laughs> right. which is what would have happened originally. Um, it would have been in, because it's a Burton beer, it would have been in small round fermenters, so probably no more than about 50 barrels, even when they were brewing a 1,000-barrel batch. The fermenters would have been very small. That's the way they did it in Burton. So those things you, you, you've got no chance of replicating uh, unless you're going to start building a, your own 19th century brewery. Uh, yeah, you'd have thought about it. <laughs> yeah, obviously we're trying to capture the spirit. Of, you know, the spirit of this is to kind of take us back in time and to get as close as we can with modern day ingredients. And, and obviously, like as Ron said, our, we're doing it in a in a modern uh, 20th century. Uh, brew house in Chicago. So, but, but, but I mean, the, the most important element for me is a very long secondary conditioning in wood with Britannomyces, and that's the thing that we've done. That, that for me, that was that was what was going to capture the essence of the beer. And ever since I found out about the crazy way that that's brewed their pale ale, I've always wanted someone to brew one the same way. And uh, I was amazed when I found we found someone who's uh, big enough of a mug to make it. So there you go. There, there, uh, that first clip obviously is them setting up the beer and how they how they came up with the beer. One thing we should mention um, mm -hmm. is uh, so this is a Burton uh, style that was made in Burton, and um, at one point Ron mentioned the the union system, right? 
which is this old weird system which we we actually patrick and i visited burton together and yeah. and saw this thing you want to do you want to describe it do you remember it well enough to describe it uh well i can get us started because i remember the basics uh actually i remember two things about it one is they have um in the in the burton brewing museum brewing, yep. i think that's what they call it uh they have sort of a, a model system and it's a bunch of barrels li- uh, lined up in a row um, with tubes connecting them, and the beer flows from barrel to barrel to barrel to barrel. And the other thing I was just mentioned is that uh, also in Burton is the big. You have to remember, remind me what the big brewery is there. Marston's. Marston's, and Marston still uses commercially still uses this old archaic system. Yeah. Um, which we weren't able to visit the brewery itself, but they have big glass uh, wall that you can look in. They're very proud of their of their Burton Union system. But uh, go ahead, you, you explain more of the technical. No, I think that is exactly right. Um, the only thing I'll add is is that it was it weirdly was an early case of uh, mass production innovation. Mm-hmm. These, these breweries were the biggest breweries in the world, and they were making a ton of beer. And I don't know why this thing was a better way to make beer, a more efficient and quicker way, but somehow it was. Um, well, do you understand the, the principle of connecting these barrels um, by tubes? I should have looked this up because I actually once understood that and I've sort of forgotten it. It's a- well, as it ferments, I know that it sort of blows the blows the uh, the yeast and the um, uh, what would we call it, tube off. Yeah, right? yeah. There's something to do with uh, the way it moves along and the way the I think the the, the brewery can recapture the yeast and uh, maybe it has to do with repitching. And they can go back to the start of it. Maybe it's a continuous system. Maybe that's part of the thing. I yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Well, I do remember the trough at the end that captures all the yeast, and then right. you then you ship that off and turn it into into marmite and put it on bread and and probably repitch some of it and and eat the bread if you're really desperate, <laughs> 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 or if you're my stepfather and do it with glee habitu- and- habitually. Yeah. yeah. Never, never understood that. Okay, um, yeah. Well, in a future podcast, we can do dedicate one to the Burton Union system. Yeah, that would be good. Um, so the uh, anyway, um, this this old system um, uh, uh, brewing was was kind of the state of the art. It's the, really the only thing you need to know about that. Um, when you're recreating one of these old recipes, um, you have to consider the things like ingredients and what what ingredients were available in this, the period of time that you you made the, uh, the, what the beer was originally made and how you approximate those ingredients in, in, in modern beers to mm-hmm. replicate those. So our next clip, um, or our next couple of clips actually talk about the ingredients. So we, the first one is about the malts that they used. It's a fairly short clip. And then we have a super fascinating discussion of the hops. Okay, here we go. For, for malt, we, Ron and I actually went to uh, Crisp uh, in, in England what, January of 2015, and saw their floor malting facility. So they still do about 1% of, of malting, uh, the traditional floor, um, floor malting. And so that's what we used. We used floor malted Maris Otter. Now, they were, we were there, actually, to, uh, to talk to them about uh, Chevalier, uh, Chevalier, 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 yeah, uh, so, which would have been the malting barley of England and, I guess, the world from 1820 to 1920 or so. Okay. Uh, at the time, they didn't have enough. They were just reviving it. They didn't have enough volume. We needed, I can't remember what we needed, but 3,500 pounds or something, and they just couldn't supply that amount. It was just, 
They were doing really small tests. So um, now, you know, a year later, maybe they would have been. But, again, that was one of those things we decided to get as close as we can uh, with in, using floor malted English pale malt. But, you know, the barley variety was, a, I guess, a concession. So I, I think the, the important thing is that it was English barley floor right. malted. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that's more important than the specific variety that you've got the English malt, which no matter what the variety has a sp- specific flavour to it, you, you, get, you get a richness from English malt that I don't think you get from from uh, um, barley that's grown elsewhere. It's, it's all to do with the, the British climate, so it's it's not so much about the specific variety; it's about the, the climate it's grown in and how you've malted it. I think are the most important things. Well, this is an 1870s Truman's recipe from Burton. Um, it has American and uh, Kent hops in it. So the Kent hops are going to be Goldings. I think it might even say East Kent. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And East Kent normally means Goldings or something like Goldings. Yeah. Don't get me started on hops and, and <laughs> Goldings because it's way more complicated than anyone thinks uh, about hops. Probably nothing today that's sold as Goldings is actually Goldings. Um, and a lot of them that are sold as Goldings aren't even nowadays really classified as Goldings. They're things that are really different types of Kent Whitebine hops. And so there's actually quite a lot of different ones, and some of them are even older than Goldings. So if you look at the stuff, if you look at the stuff that's uh, the Farnham Whitebine, which even though they stopped growing hops in Farnham, that variety didn't die out, and they have recently replanted hops in Farnham. That's an older hop than, than, than Goldings, and a hop that was even more highly regarded than Goldings in the 19th century. Um, but there's a whole bunch of very similar genetically hop, genetically similar hops um, that are generally called white pines. And the cluster is, I think, super will be super fascinating for an American audience to uh, hear that English brewers were using American cluster hops. Uh, talk a little bit about how common that was. Okay. Well, this is one of my favorite things, that, that, that people are generally totally shocked as to how many American hops were used in British beer in the 19th century. They show up in the mid-1840s for the first time. It's the first time I see them in records. By the 1850s and 60s, they're becoming incredibly common. And you're looking at maybe the, the, between 1860 and 1914, on average, probably 25% of all the hops used in Britain came from North America, uh, mostly from the U.S., but also from British Columbia and Canada as well. Initially from the East Coast, so from New York, later on on the West Coast. Look, at, look into the history of hop growing in, in New York State, and what you'll see is people were planting hops because they knew they could sell them in Britain. They were deliberately growing them for the export market, there wasn't that much of a market for them in, 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 a, in the States because the brewing industry wasn't that big. Britain had the largest brewing industry in the world. Some years leading up in, in, in the late 19th century, Britain was using 50% of all the hops grown in the whole world. So they were <laughs> yeah, sucking in hops from everywhere. Every single place in the world they, they grew hops, it turns up in British beer. But American hops are incredibly important. Right up until World War One, obviously during World War One they can't get the hops anymore because of the problems of shifting stuff across the Atlantic. So they go over to using completely British-grown hops. 
between the wars, they go back to using lots of American hops and especially lots of American barley as well. They really loved Californian barley. One of the weirdest things I've read is about how in, in 1914, they were still shipping barley from California to England by sailing ship, if you can believe that. <laughs> wow. Which is completely crazy. So in the 20s and 30s, you have English hop, uh, American hops become really common in, in, in English beer again. Then World War II, they stop using them. And then after World War II, Britain's pretty much self-sufficient in, in brewing ingredients because of what, basically because of the war. They, 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 if you see barley production in, in the UK, it like goes up tenfold during World War II. It's an absolutely enormous increase in the amount of barley grown. Um, and so they don't need foreign ingredients anymore. But up until World War I, Britain was incredibly dependent on foreign ingredients, and especially American ones. Well, that's really fascinating. And he can count me as one of those people that is pretty shocked uh, to learn how much American hops were used in British brewing in the 1800s. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say is that's sort of the age of the great expansion in trade. Um, uh, coinciding with the use of steam and shipping and steam boats, steam-powered uh, naval vessels, um, naval vessels, uh, sea vessels. Um, <clears throat> so uh, trade became much, much more, com uh, uh, much more common and much less expensive. Um, although he does mention that uh, they, they used to ship the barley via uh, sailing ships, yeah. um, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah, I don't <laughs> even crazy. understand that. That just seems crazy. Like you said, <laughs> that's the word he used. It's interesting, though. You're, you're sending these uh, cluster hops, which, are, you know, they first come from New York. So it's just a, yeah. just a, a, a trip across the Atlantic. But then they're coming from California in the Northwest, and they got to go either uh, west all the way around the world mm -hmm. in this, by sea, or they have to go on a, on a train or something all the way to the East Coast. It just seems like that those hops had to be so cheap for that to be still profitable. Yeah. Uh, you know, for the, uh, for the, or it still had, you know, for the British brewers to want to still use it, they had to arrive at a, at a price point that still made sense. And yeah. that after being shipped all that, it was kind of seems crazy to me. Yeah, it does. It, it does me as well. Um, yeah, I don't know uh, much about, I know that the, the interesting thing, this is sort of a parenthetical, but um, the, the 20th century really was marked by these massive decreases in shipping costs that happened mm -hmm. in the 1960s, 70s, 80s with this intermodal container shipping. Right. Uh, and so that has created just an amazing global marketplace of goods that are just transported everywhere. Um, but back in the day, um, things weren't shipped as much. Hops aren't terribly heavy, but right. they are bulky. Right. Um, so it makes it interesting. I don't know. It's actually another question. I wonder if they were if they had figured out some kind of version of compressing or pelletizing hops mm -hmm. back then. So I, I don't know. I imagine they're just, they're just uh, shipping bushels across. But Yeah. Ron would know. We'll have to ask him. Yeah. More, more stuff for us. <laughs> pod one will be the Burton Union system, and pod two will be the global rise in hop trade. <laughs> right. So this, this uh, discussion of hops got me interested, uh, and uh, I asked uh, some question as a follow-up. Um, the, the, one of the characteristics of the stock pale ale that they made was that it used a ton of hops. They, 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 they made it with these massive amount of hops. Hmm. And, um, I asked some question about, uh, the, wouldn't, wouldn't by the time it's been sitting in a barrel mm -hmm. for a, a year after having been brewed, wouldn't those hops change? And, um, 
this isn't necessarily precisely on point, but I thought it was so fascinating. I'm going to throw it in here as a clip um, because it's one of the lessons that comes out of these process, these kind of experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, they traced the, they tested the, the IBUs um, from, from the point at well, when it exited the kettle, when it was mm-hmm. still work through the time they bottled. Right. And those IBUs changed in an interesting way. And I think there's a lesson there because this process, of course, works in modern beers too. The right. same thing happens. So why don't we listen to this? This isn't specifically about old beer, but it is a fascinating lesson. Okay, here we go. You were looking at these old, old logs and now you come to Chicago and you're about to make this beer. Walk me through uh, the process of coming up with that recipe and, and how you made those decisions. Well, I look at the recipe and I see how many hops are in it, uh, and, and because it's Gloucester and Goldings, I don't think they've changed over the years. Uh, the top quality pale ales they normally use pretty fresh hops, so I, I, I wasn't, wasn't going to change the hopping quantities because I think that the old ones were the right level. So, in other beers, sometimes I'll knock down the the, the, the amount of hops because I can see. One of the things they do, though, it's really weird with hops in the, in the brewing records. Often they don't tell you what variety they are. They just tell you where they come from. So it's Worcester or East Kent or Mid Kent. Right. But, but they will always tell you what year they were harvested. And so often you'll see in recipes that they're using hops that are two or three years old. But in the case of this beer, they were fresh hops because it was a top-class pale ale and you were going to use the best hops in it. Now, so that strikes me as kind of interesting, since surely that hot flavor over the course of the time in the barrel is going to, you know, degrade quite a bit and change as, as you get the, the action of the bread. Well, one of the most interesting things about this whole uh, experiment has been the fact that the, the bitterness unit, as the beer has been maturing and fermenting, yeah, and to, to see just how the, the bitterness levels change over time. And it's something that I've seen very, very little written about anywhere, about what happens with bitterness, really. So everyone knows the phase over time, but exactly how it does it. And the few things I've, I've gathered from speaking to the people at Fuller's was that you see a big drop-off in the first six months and not quite as much in the next six months, and then after a year, the, the decline seems to really level out. And so it's right at the start that all the changes in bitterness levels change. And once the beer is over 9 or 12 months old, it doesn't change that much. Um, I was amazed when, when they were showing how much it changed just from um, leaving, the mass, leaving the copper to the end of primary fermentation, how, how many bitterness units had been dropped just in that process. That, that, that I found truly amazing. That's super fascinating. So, Mike, were you the one who was uh, tracking the bitterness uh, as this beer was going along? Yeah, I mean, with, of course, the help of our, um, our lab, they were, they're the ones actually doing the analysis, but we do internal BU analysis all the time. So it was, so, a, it, it was essentially a request from me to, to them to say, hey, let's track the work. Let's track the uh, let's track BUs at every interval that we can, including work and the fermentation and crash beer, you know, right before it went into the barrel, and then track it in the barrel. Uh, no, we didn't track every single barrel, but we would take samples from an individual barrel and just 
assume that the rest were more or less on the same track. Uh, and then we got a final BU, obviously, when we blended the, the barrels back together. So what did it start out with, and how was it like when you put it in the barrels, and then after six months, and then after a year? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it was 130. Yeah, I want to say the work was around 135, 140. End of fermentation, crash beer, pre-barrel was... 97 or so, 96, 97, 98, and then, well, I and then, uh, I want to say about four months in, we were already into the 70s, huh. and then, um, and then at 11 months, we were in the low 60s. So, uh, beers will lose uh, half their IBUs if you barrel age them for a year, uh, but from the time that exits the wort through the end, which is fascinating. Yeah, I had no idea. That's that's a lot. Yeah, and it loses. Um, he said it went down from 130 or 140 down to 97 uh, just through fermentation. Right. So big right. big chemical change there too. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I want to uh, congratulate you for maintaining the artisanal quality of the, you like <laughs> of that? the podcast while you're, you're fiddling with whatever it is you're fiddling with in the middle of that interview. So, uh, yeah, we don't want to get into what my high-tech uh, recording <laughs> technique looks like. but I just have a feeling that I'm sure there's an easier way on an iPhone you could just record it directly. But that's me. Uh, anyway, so uh, where to go from here? Uh, yeah, so... Back on track um, to the to the point at hand, I got back into um, we we talked about the ingredients and and uh, the brewing a little bit, and then um, this is a barrel aged beer, and its its character is is defined so much by uh, what happens in the barrel. Right. So I got back on track, and after delving into hops for thirty minutes, um, which I didn't inflict on the the listener, <laughs> um, uh, got back to the barrels. So the next bit um, they talk about what, what barrel selection looked like. Okay, here we go. We used what we felt would be the best choice, uh, given that we've got a lot of barrels and they generally fall into category of spirit or wine, and wine being toasted, uh, staves internally, um, bourbon being charred. Um, we used, ended up using 53-gallon uh, American oak bourbon barrels that had been used twice previously for beer, yeah, and then to that, so just obviously taking character with it, we wanted to be as neutral as possible, so we continued, uh, instead of just using it for beer uh, and leaving it, obviously, what they, I think I mentioned this in the, in the write-up, is that uh, brewers of that time would steam the barrels to uh, leak out some of the, kind of neutralize them, I guess, is the best way to put it, and so we did the same thing. We rinsed rinsed and rinsed and rinsed, uh, we steamed, we rinsed and steamed. We did this multiple times to extract anything that would have flavor-wise that we could get out of the pores of the wood um, as, as much as possible, try to really just try to minimize any type of color pickup, any type of flavor pickup. Um, so that's essentially was, was our process, was, was a rinsing and steaming of barrels that had been used previously a couple times for, for beer. I mean, this all, this all came from um, what I'd explained to Mike about the, the, the type of, of barrels that they used in England, which were normally made from what they called memoirs, which comes from the Eastern Baltic, which is a very neutral form of uh, wood. 
um, that they specifically didn't want barrels made from American oak because it gave too much flavor. So we tried really hard to get very, very neutral barrels because that's what they what they wanted. They weren't they weren't aging the beer in wood because they wanted wood character in the beer. They were just wanted to age the beer. They weren't trying to. It's a very different attitude to the modern one, which is where you're trying to pick up flavor from the barrels. In the old days, it was the exact opposite. They didn't want any flavor from the barrels. Right. So we we tried quite hard on this, and I think in the finished beer. Uh, Mike says that he got a better palate than me. He says he can pick up a bit of, uh, of vanilla in there. Um, maybe I can, but probably there was a little bit, bit of vanilla in the background in, in the old days as well, because the, the wood was never going to be completely 100% neutral, especially not when you're leaving the, the beer in it for a year. Yeah. But it, it, it didn't pick up... It, 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 any, anything it's picked up from the wood is just like a minor sort of background feature in the beer. So was... This beer barrel aged uh, on how do I how do I want to say this um, was barrel aging common of all beers at the time, or is this a special a special beer that was barrel aged? You know what I mean, right? I do know what you mean. Um, in uh, the UK, uh, there were uh, categories of beer, and one was stock ale, mm-hmm. uh, and stock ales were always aged, and barrel aging was a long tradition in in Britain. Mm-hmm. Going back to the time when they made porters uh, and barrel aged the porters mm. uh, a century or two earlier, um, but they they barrel aged old ales like the one that we had when we were uh, at Green King. Mm-hmm. That tradition is very old um, and also produces that vinous quality that you get from from bread aging. Right. So so a brewery at the time would be would be doing both. They would have sort of young ales that weren't barrel aged, and then they'd also have barrel aged. Right. And we actually talked a little bit about this uh, in this interview. Um, the brewery probably would have been uh, not quite sanitary, you know, especially right. when you've got the uh, you've got the uh, Burton system going. Mm-hmm. You're probably actually picking up Brett at some point through the process, whether but even before it goes into these barrels. Right. And one of the things I think uh, a theory that I would forward is that one of the reasons Cascale is goes through so fast. Um, you brew it, you get it in the cask and you get it to the pub and you start serving it within a couple of weeks. It, it is, uh, uh brewed and, and in the pub, um, bread doesn't have a chance to work that fast. So these are, these are sweet mild ales that are, uh, meant to be served fast, um, before anything like the wild <laughs> Easter bacteria get going. Uh, I see. I see. So in this case, uh, Brett was part of the beer. It was introduced naturally through the barrels or maybe even before due to unsanitary conditions. But then Brett became a feature of the beer. Yeah, it definitely did. And it it was with uh, uh, Porter, too. I mean, the Brett aging or the the barrel aging uh, of Porter transformed it from this rough kind of smoky, harsh beer into this sublime beer that that was so popular it got sent all over the world. Right. And and this is a supposedly has the same process. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's supposedly a wonderful beer, which... I've now listened to this interview twice, and I've been getting thirstier the whole time. Should we crack this thing open? <laughs> yeah, let's crack it open. And while we do, uh, remind me, um, what what uh, time period are we talking about here with this beer? I think we're talking uh, mid nineteenth century. Okay. So, it, it, um, and I guess the you know they were made uh, over a period of decades, but I think that the right. heyday started in the mid nineteenth century. And do you know, like, sort of when the the style petered out, when it kind of got lost to history. A lot of these things, there were a couple of things that were uh, uh, the death knell. One was the discovery. It, Pasteur came along in the, the mid-1800s, uh, 
1857, he published his studies on yeast. Right. And uh, we, for the first time, actually saw yeast and understood stood, uh, at a microbiological level what they were doing. Mm-hmm. That The rest of the 20, uh, 19th century, there was a lot of uh, research into yeast. Right. And um, in, at, at Copenhagen, or at, I'm sorry, at Carlsberg in Copenhagen, they mm-hmm. actually isolated pure yeast right. for lager beer. First time they ever did that. Probably there were a lot of mixed strains before that. Um, right around the turn of the century, they discovered Brettanomyces, which they called the British fungus. <laughs> Bretan is uh, from Britain, mm-hmm. and Myces is fungus. And um, uh, the reason they called it that was because they got it out of one of these barrel-aged beers. Right. So I think people were starting to move away from wilder yeast as they understood that they could have more control over their brewery mm-hmm. if they didn't have that in there. And start controlling the microbiology. and Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, of course... Science got involved science. in everything. <laughs> well, science and then another big inter- intervention uh, in the teens, which was the First World War and then later Second World War. Yeah. These had this big effect on, on British brewing um, because they had grain shortages and hop shortages. So there was the great, what they call the great gravity drop. Mm-hmm. The brewers didn't have the resources to make strong beers anymore. Mm-hmm. And after two world wars, the British palate shifted and they were interested in much lighter beers. So these kinds of crazy old barrel aged beers that are quite strong um, have yeah. fallen out of favor. And interestingly, just to, just to sort of circle back to an earlier point, uh, the interwar period between the First World War and the Second World War, period, uh, World War uh, was a period of a huge uh, crash in global trade. Um, it was a period of great isolationism and uh, global trade just diminished to uh, a fraction of what it had been uh, prior and it didn't start catching up until that period I talked about, 50s, 60s, 70s. That's fascinating. I was not aware of that. So I don't know how much that affected you know, uh, the ingredients available from abroad. I didn't even know uh, until now that there was a lot of ingredients from abroad used. Um, I'm smelling this. It's not even close to my nose. I'm already smelling this beer. <laughs> and this beer really smells like another beer that I, I like uh, a great Ooh. deal. Wow, this is a very um, sour nose. Yeah, it has... Uh, a lot of character in the nose. It's not just sour. There's a kind of a sourdough quality. Mm. There's something, it's not just sharp. There's something kind of round and uh, full about the the aroma. Yeah. Describe the appearance. Uh, it is uh, a really nice honey color. Is that, would you say honey? Yep. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and it is fairly clear, but not perfectly bright. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really quite a uh, pretty color actually. It's, yeah, uh, it, it is. It has a real I think what I would think uh, think of as a classic British pale ale color, which is which, which is darker than Americans would think of pale ales. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. And it has it's it's reasonably but not too effervescent. Uh, the head dissipated quickly. Wow! <laughs> Smiling. That's uh, so. It's. Um, According the bottle, eight point four percent, and I assume that that's a an amount that they measured when it went into the bottle because it will have attenuated and gotten stronger mm. through the process of the brat. Yeah, so you're also making a face. This is quite a beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the parts of my face is just that there's a lot of alcohol in this, and I can taste it. Yeah, there's a lot of everything in this. This is yeah. quite a an amazing beer. So um, the, when you taste it, the first, the, 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 I think two things that are really sharp are both the hops and the, the alcohol. Mm-hmm. So you get yep. these, you, you get these like twin assaults on the palate. Yeah. Uh, but but then, not a, but not a bracingly bitter hop. It's just a very strong hop. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's kind of it, well, and that, the interesting thing is that hop really uh, has an interplay with the dry, very dry Brettanomyces quality, so that, mm-hmm. that there's the kind of a, the hops fade into this very dry Brett quality. And I've always wondered how well they would harmonize. Like uh, having read about this, mm. it, it struck me that bitterness and and Brett are not necessarily so good. You don't see very many bitter Brett beers. Right, right. This is interesting because it's just affecting only the front part of my tongue. You know, it's not it doesn't have that sort of hoppy bitter residue that that sits on the back of your tongue in the big the big bitter IPAs, for example. There are there are nice citrusy, almost tropical notes in there as well which i attribute uh partly to the brat and maybe the maybe the uh, hops contribute a bit of it too yeah mm. it's really unusual it's kind of, it's a little bit hard to describe because there's not very many beer I've, yeah, I yeah i've never had a beer that tastes like this it does remind me of a beer which we're going to talk about and, and actually the guys are going to talk about okay. um but they it, it reminded me much more of that beer on the aroma than it does on the palate. This is quite strong, quite, um, it's a flavor, it's a flavor fiesta. Yeah, I mean, I would describe my response to exactly as you've been, which is that I don't think I've ever had a beer that features um, both sort of sourness and bitterness in equal measure like this. Yeah. And it's, uh, um, it's not, uh, uh, it's neither perfectly harmonious or discordant. It's just, it's an interesting interplay, mm-hmm. I guess. That's how I would put it. It's really hard to describe, as you say. Um, it really has, for me, uh, you know, I'm sensitive to alcohol, and it has a lot of, uh, the alcohol flavor really permeates everything. It does have a pretty soft finish. Mm-hmm. In the mouth, it feels like it's uh, going to go wind up for this massive pop at the end, and it doesn't. Yeah. It actually kind of softens and... Yeah, that was kind of the point I was making with the back of the tongue. It yeah. just kind of it, it dissipates in your mouth, and I'm left with a little sort of alcohol residue in the front of my mouth. And it's quite dry. It's very dry mm-hmm. beer. Um, so that's also part of it, I think. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I would definitely say, and I don't want to get, show my hand about the beer that I'm reminded of, but <laughs> there's a Belgian quality to it. It does yes. it does remind me of uh, Belgian beers I've had a little bit. Certainly much more so than, than English beers. It does not taste like an English beer at all. Yeah, I think I think the first response you'd get from someone if you just stuck it under their nose real quick is, oh, yeah, it's a Belgian mm-hmm. sour, because that's the first thing. But now that I've had a number of sips, you know, it's really the hot bitterness that's starting to come. Mm. It's starting to, to linger on my tongue. <clears throat> and so it, it was the sourness at first, and now it's the the hops. And we're down it to, according to the bottle, sixty two IBUs, but they are a uh, a robust sixty two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. All right, well, why don't we uh, wind up uh, the next or set up the next uh, quote? Um, one thing I'm going to skip is I actually talked to them about the yeast that they pitched. They used the Brettanomyces clausenii, which was mm-hmm. the uh, the variety that Clausen, who was working at uh, Carlsberg, originally isolated from, from the British barrels. From, from the British barrels, oh, okay. so it was named after the the uh, the, the scientist clausenii, but it's a, it's that one. So I think that's probably pretty authentic. And they talked about uh, rather than pitching the brett in in the in the conditioning tank before they put it in all the barrels they mm-hmm. actually pitched the barrels separately and uh whether 
for whatever reason, they lost about uh, 25% of their barrels. They ended up going bad. Huh. So he wasn't, uh, Mike wasn't really sure if that was because they didn't pitch that, like if the yeast somehow behaved differently when you pitched it separately or it wasn't well mixed or whatever, right. whatever it was, they did have to end up dumping a few barrels. And um, uh, when they finally, I, I'm not sure if they mentioned this, but they did a final blend of all the barrels together. They didn't, they didn't do a, like a, like you do with lambics where you compose, compose flavors. So they had to get rid of these barrels that had off flavors. Right. Right. So we skip that. And then we go on to, um, this quote where they talk that the, the beer's name is brewery yard and, uh, Ron will describe for us what, what that refers to. And, um, I, I, I think in this quote, we, it, it references, I think there's some, connection to the goose island brewery which if it's not explicit i will describe that afterwards okay and just one quick question before we before we do that was brett was the brett the only yeast they pitched well they did a primary fermentation uh with sack okay and then uh at, at the end of that primary fermentation they added the brett and put it in the right before they put it in the barrels actually they put it in the barrels and they added the brett Okay. They did it immediately. So, you know, originally probably there was a little bit of Brett in the primary fermentation and it would carry through, but right. they didn't do it that way. And I, I don't know that it would be super obvious if you did it, the, uh, if you, if you did a mixed strain of Brett and sack at the start. Yeah. We wouldn't know the difference anyway. So. <laughs> okay. So here we go. When you read the descriptions of the 19th century, they're basically saying that leaving it out in the open toughened it up. So that if the beer could get through that process without going off, then you could put it through any sort of temperature changes and anything, and it wasn't going to go bad because it had already had all that thing that stuff happened to it, and it was still okay. And it seems to be part of the idea of that. Yeah, once it had done this, then you could put it on a ship where it was going to get really hot on the way to India, keep changing temperature. You know, when you're in the you know, it'd start the journey quite cold. You'd go across the, the, the equator and then it'd be quite hot. So it'd be really changing temperatures. And because the beer had already gone through those processes, it it wasn't as likely to go bad. It, but, but, I mean, it just seems the, the craziest, craziest way. And, and the, what's even more amazing is that this was one of the largest breweries in the world at the time, that's when they were doing making their beer this way. So they were making it in, in, in a crazily counterintuitive way, making this beer that was incredibly famous across the world. Um, yet they were doing this mad thing where they just left it out in the open for a year. So my setup wasn't exactly perfect. I should have pointed out that the brewery yard concept uh, at Bass, they just left the barrels in this huge stack, and, and they actually sent me a picture of this uh-huh. in the brewery yard outside. Um, and the reason this is interesting is because at Goose Island, they don't have a uh, temperature-controlled barrel room. Uh-huh. So it's this giant warehouse that they have all these barrels in. And it gets in real- Chicago. In Chicago, right. <laughs> Which gets super hot and super cold. Exactly. And because um, it's in that room, in that warehouse, the, the warehouse uh, does actually mitigate that somewhat. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about that, uh, Mike said, oh, yeah, it mitigates it. It goes from... Uh, and I can't remember what, what the range was, but it was fairly similar to a range that you might get in. In, in, in Burton. In Burton, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is, uh, many breweries would uh, get a different effect if uh-huh. they if they had, uh, you know, if they kept it at a, at a solid 55 degrees. They would get a really different production of bread. Right. Um, yeah. So. And how long did they keep this in, uh, conditioning in the barrel? A year. A year. 
Yeah, I mean, it was maybe slightly less than a year, but right, right. But, basically, but they got right a right full here. season of hot and cold. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So this last clip is pretty nice. Um, I had to ask, you know, what did you think of this beer? Um, you've done this experiment. They, they they spent a few months or maybe even more than than a year talking about it before they brewed it, and then mm-hmm. they brewed it. It was you know a year and uh, that they had to wait and. Here it is. Uh, you, you you get it done and you open the bottle and what do you think? So yeah. this is what you, I asked you've heard about. ours. So let's hear them. Yeah. How did how, what was it like? Was it like what you expected? Uh, what did you find? Um, well, I didn't quite know what to expect. Like, I expected that um, some Britanno Mites character, and I also expected something about the bitterness. Um, the Britanno Mites. That's yeah. That. It was interesting that the, the, the Britannia, really the Britannia mighty is on the nose, so it smells like all that would be. It's, it's the best description I can get. Yeah. Um, but the bitterness really fits in with what I've read about the descriptions of the bitterness in 19th century pale ale. So it's not an aromatic bitterness. It's this underlying bitterness that just sort of like carries on and stays in your mouth and makes the beer weirdly drinkable, I, I find, that... that it sort of dries your, your, your throat out a little bit, so you want to drink more. Um, I think with this beer, it's incredibly dangerous because it's 8.4% alcohol, so you, you, you could quite easily end up drinking way more than you should. Yeah, I'd, I would say my um, my thoughts on the beer is the Clausinia contribution provided both some some tropical fruit and some leathery notes. I, I mentioned uh, in a in a separate talk about this, that one of the barrels in particular, back when we were going through barrel by barrel, smelled like a, a very old baseball glove. And uh, but you know, in a, if you throw that one away, you no, know, we kept it. <laughs> that, was, that was that was a positive thing, but it was a little bit unexpected. It was it was, it was one barrel in particular that was just very kind of well worn leather. And but you know, you get these elements with Pachamaisis and Clausinii does throw off uh, some. But I think there's some some pleasant tropical notes. Um, so aromatically, yes, the bread uh, I think comes across very forward. Uh, the beer is dry. It's got a, uh, a pronounced I would call pronounced bitterness without being you know anything too uh, you know it, it, it does end up being something that's uh, that's quite pleasant. You know, it's uh, it may come into offense for somebody who just doesn't like bitter beer at all. But other than that, I don't, I don't think there's any any element of this beer that would be off-putting to anybody that's got a fairly open mind. It's uh, it's approachable. It is fairly unique. It's, um, it's it, you know, you and I had a little, Jeff had a little bit of an email exchange, and Ron just mentioned it, but the, the Orval connection keeps coming up. I mean, it's, 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 it, it is different, but you can see that the, the parallels for sure. Um, it's uh, I'm, I'm quite happy with how it turned out to be, you know, as a, bo- as a bottom line. It's it made a beer that uh, that I think stands alone. I, I mean, I think with this project, it, it's such a distinctive beer. It's a, it's a, a unique thing. It's really not like it doesn't taste like any other beer on the market. I don't think, um, and. It's been, for me, a really, really exciting process. Um, I was prepared to be incredibly patient because I really wanted to try this bit. And uh, I was so glad 
that uh, Mike was interested in brewing it because I'd, I'd kicked this idea around with some other brewers and no one was <laughs> no one was willing to take it on. So uh, I'm really glad that Goose Island did. Ah, so now I know what you're talking about, the Orval. The Orval totally clicks when you put it under your nose. Yeah, It's yeah. like Orval on hop steroids. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the flavor is a little bit different. It's, it's a yeah. little bit more, uh, more assertive in the hops, and, 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 and it just kind of goes a slightly different direction. But the nose, so much that smells like Orval. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Um, and more alcohol. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. I think Orval is maybe two points lower. I think it's about six and a half. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a really interesting, totally unique beer. We were, when we were preparing this clip off air, I guess, can you call it air when it's a podcast off tape? No, off microchip. I don't know. Anyway, air, air. <laughs> okay. Air we'll, call it, cool. we'll call it air. Yeah. It sounds cool. Exactly. <laughs> Two to old folks like us. Right. Who remember, <laughs> remember radio. Um, <laughs> uh, we were saying how, how, uh, how interesting and unique and, um, how we definitely recommend it if nothing else, just for the experience. It's just nothing, it's like nothing you've ever tasted. Yeah, and it's it's actually weirdly contemporary because mm-hmm. so much of brewing has gone in this direction, uh, looking for complex barrel-aged flavors, um, the I- I- intermingle, intermingling is not the right word, the interaction of uh, wood and wild yeast mm-hmm. uh, to create this kind of complexity. Uh, all that stuff is really contemporary, and I, I personally would love to see Stock Pale Ale come back. I think this is, I, I, my sense is people would really like this. It's a pretty interesting beer, so I totally recommend you look at your bottle shop so you can find this beer. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Do you think were the original Stock Pale Ales all this high in alcohol content? Because you know, I, I, I think of the post-war British beers, which tend to be lower alcohol. Yeah, I think they were. Um, I, I, my guess is that's probably a range, but yeah. but the range might go higher than this. Uh, <laughs> Quite possibly. I'd good. love to taste one that's about 6%. Yeah, that might be interesting too. The the, the word stock indicates stock ale was always pretty strong. Um, oh, okay. It, yeah, it would age it would age better. And um, the mild ales, which is to say unaged, could be any anything. So yeah. back in the day, you might have a 10% mild ale. Uh, Maybe, I don't know. Actually, they had the uh, capacity to make a ten percent beer back in those days without wild yeast. Oh, because that's they, fascinating. I, so mild wasn't a oh, yeah. Okay. Mi- mild originally only meant uh, unaged. It was not stock. So you had two categories of beer: stock and mild. Oh, okay. Hey. Yeah. So there some, you go. Some and, learning going on here. Yeah, but <laughs> but the stock ale. I think this. My sense is, and especially I, I do read ron's blog quite a bit uh and when i read ron's blog and he first described this i it actually sounded like orval so i've always wondered if it would taste like orval so that was a yeah absolutely was you clued into it just from the written description i i did i actually wrote a wrote a post after i uh read his post and said it sounds like orval and apparently ron himself has also been thinking that it's it it uh is going to taste like Orval. So we had both had, I asked him what his expectations were, and he said, I had no expectations. He had expectations. He thought it might, he wondered whether it would taste like Orval. So I think that question was in his mind. It was certainly in my mind. It's super fascinating then that when you finally actually conduct the experiment, the first thing that you, that strikes you when you, when you smell it is Orval. Once you taste it, it's a little different, but yeah, uh, that's really interesting. And it's good that Orval is different. I mean, Orval, I think probably um, the history of Orval is that uh, uh, it it actually looks like an English stock ale. And and if you understand the history, it's it's, it's a... uh, made with uh it's got it's got brett they add brett the same way that they add it to this beer um after the 
initial fermentation, but it's dry hopped and mm-hmm. it's a pretty hoppy beer. Um, so it actually looked a lot like this beer. And uh, uh, I think it's the influence of Britain has always pe- people who, who think uh, who've come to craft beer now in the 21st century, think America is a big deal. Everybody knows Germany is a big deal mm-hmm. for the period of time between uh, 1700 and uh, the world wars. The most important brewing country by far, by far, there's nobody that's even close, is Great Britain. Mm-hmm. All the great technologies came out of Great Britain. They influenced breweries all over the world. Um, uh, the, the pale lagers wouldn't exist except for people f- discovering that the Brits had figured out ways of pale kiln, uh, pale malting beers. Right. And they were they had started making pale ales. Like It's impossible to overstate how important Britain was to brewing for that period of time during the great technological revolution. So it's not surprising that a beer like this would have influenced a bunch of monks in the thirties. And ah, good point. Yeah. yeah. yeah interesting. <laughs> I didn't click on that until just so you said that. Yeah. Uh, let's give the proper plug here. So this, this beer is um, called brewery brewery yard stock pale ale uh, from goose Island. Uh, it's a nice label brewed in collaboration with brewing historian Ron Pattinson. They put it right on there. there 62 go. IBUs, 8.4 alcohol by volume. And I got to say, Ron is fundamentally a blogger like me. Uh-huh. And to have your name on a label is badass. And I bet Ron's proud as punch. I would be super cool if a brewery ever put my name on it. I would love that. <laughs> you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> Breweries. Uh, so um, is it out now? Is it being sold? Yes. Retail? I think they launched. The reason I was able to interview the two together was uh, because yeah, Ron was in Chicago for the launch. So I think... Uh, so so you should see it soon, if not already, in yep. your local bottle shop. Very, very soon. It should be out. Probably, it's probably out. By the time this pod airs, it'll be out, I think. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was really fun. Yeah. All right. So Thanks, thanks Mike and Ron. Good job, Yeah, guys. yeah. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk with Jeff. Uh, and thanks, Jeff, for sharing it with us. Oh, and just so Patrick shot me a little uh, uh, a shot about the low production quality. But I will tell you, if you listen carefully to this uh, clips, you'll hear a little a little uh, a phone sound. Which, which, by the way, I chastised him for as we were listening to the clip. And that phone was Patrick finally getting back to me after uh, <laughs> I've been begging him because I wasn't sure whether we wanted to interview these guys for this very podcast. So as I, I made the executive decision that we would do this podcast and right in the middle of it, Patrick texted me to said, say, oh yeah, that seems like a good idea. So there you go. <laughs> That's the quality you expect and receive from the Beard on a Podcast. I'm, I'm always on it. <laughs> See, I knew, it was, I, knew you'd, I knew you'd make the right call. Yep. <laughs> and I think I did because um, that was super fascinating to hear that. And the flavor of this beer is so weird and unusual and beguiling that um, now that I've actually tasted it, I feel very... Uh, magnetized by this whole thing so yeah if you're interested in beer and i assume you are if you're listening to this then this is something you should definitely go out and find and try because it's unlike anything you've had yeah and it's really hard to find anything new under the sun Uh but this and i've been a skeptic of revival beers i found most of them to be uninteresting and not very modern you know i mean they they went out of they they faded away because they were not modern right and and they were um not so interesting this actually tastes fairly modern i think people would find it interesting Oh, yeah, I could see this as a totally intentional creation of the 21st century. So, yep. uh, Okay, so we have the mailbag and the Sherpa, but dang you, listeners, we have no mailbag. That's right. What are we doing wrong? Yeah, we, got, we keep begging you, too. You listen, but you don't comment. 
Maybe yeah. we're just, are we that titanically impressive that we just intimidate you the, just the take, listener? take, take, but don't give. Oh, maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Jeez. Maybe we should charge you and then you'd feel like you could comment. 21st century selfish, self-involved. It's the millennials. Yeah, the millennials. Dang you, millennials. <laughs> Couple of aging Gen Xers uh, blaming the, the young the young folks. But nonetheless, we are going to bestow upon you our beer sherpa recommendations. Well, sort of. I'm kind of kind of cop out, but go ahead. <laughs> no, I don't think you are copying out. And just to put a more serious note on that, please please uh, send us comments. And yeah, they don't. You don't have to uh, have a question. You can just say, "Hey guys, I loved the Ron Pattinson thing. You should do more of that, or that was super boring, or whatever it is. Just let us know. The underscore beer axe at yahoo.com. Um, there are a lot of ways to find us. That's the easiest. Uh, let us know. Okay, Beer Sherpa. Uh, we, are have, we have seasonal recommendations because we have come after a long summer. Uh, the weather's changed, and uh, we've come into a new season of, of uh, beer. And my recommendation mm-hmm. is uh, I'm going to go for an Oktoberfest. Nice. Beer. Um, nice. It is the time of Oktoberfest. Actually, as we record this, Munich's Oktoberfest is either starting or about to start. I think it's I think it's actually starting. I think I saw somebody uh, in Lederhosen on Facebook. So, <laughs> so that's, got, that's, that's the sure sign. Yeah, that seems like the something. Uh, so I'm going to go for an American Oktoberfest. I think it's one of the very best in the world. It's certainly the best, uh, one of the best in, in the United States. And that is New Glarus's Staghorn Oktoberfest. Oh, New Glarus. Yeah. And it, it was... Wisconsin. Um, Wisconsin. Back when Patrick and I were living uh, and actually residing together in Wisconsin, going to grad school, New Glarus opened, and it was a big enough event in the in the early 1990s, or I guess mid 1990s by that time, mm-hmm. to be uh, broadcast on the, the local news. And mm-hmm. we saw it and thought, "Oh, look at that! There's a new brewery, New Glarus." And you know, it could have ended up being a completely non-event, but of course, New Glarus became New Glarus, and that stuck in my memory. Yeah. Originally, New Glarus was mainly known for Loggers mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in Wisconsin those early days. Um, and I, that was appropriate because Wisconsin is a German, you know, most, most of the people there are descended from Germans or um, some Poles, but a lager, lager country. And uh, when that Oktoberfest came out, the first time I had that Oktoberfest, it was one of the very first loggers that changed my mind about the capacity of loggers to impress. And it is still really good. It's um, got a kind of deep, wonderful, rich, uh, a malt character and um, some kind of spicy, lacy hops garlanded over the top, and you feel like you could easily drink a liter of that and maybe two or three. Yeah. So give me, a, give me a Stein and give me some st- staghorn. Yep, I remember well going to the uh, Rathskeller in Moral Union at University of Wisconsin to find the new Glarus beer, or Stiskeller, actually, to be more precise. Mm. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and actually, sorry, I clued on this when uh, my local uh, Sorry. O- Oaks Park event space hosts a, an Oktoberfest and um, uh, rel- the other seasonal rel- yeah relevant to my thing is the week after they also host a, a fresh hop festival um, so my recommendation is sort of a non-recommendation well it's uh, I can't really make a singular beer Sherpa recommendation for a fresh hop beer for the following reason which is that fresh hop beer is fresh and perishes quickly, and I don't find any fresh hop beer in the bottle unless you happen to get it, you know, days after it was shipped out of the the brewery um, to be particularly uh, um, enticing. So my recommendation is to go out. And fresh hop beers have become uh, fairly ubiquitous. You'll find them all over the place uh, now, even 
places that are relatively far from the hop fields. Right, because other people now grow their own hops. Now so grow other... their own hops. Hops are being revived in other parts of the U.S. as well. Uh, and so you can find, uh, most of you, I hope, at least in the United States, uh, some fresh hop beer on tap. And I recommend that you go out and seek it and seek the fresh stuff. Seek the stuff that's on tap and don't settle for the bottled uh, stuff because fresh hop beer is interesting, if not delightful. It can be very delightful, I think. Um, I love it. I think it's uh, a unique time to really sort of connect with the, with the earth, um, with the artisanal quality of beer and, um, and try these things out. So uh, I love the season. Uh, I can't make a single recommendation. I say go try to find something as local as you can and as fresh as you can. An excellent recommendation. Now's the season. Go. Yeah, now's the season. Go. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, it never really occurred to me that Oktoberfest and Fresh Hop yeah. season really coincided, but they do. They do. There you go. Uh, so, very different traditions. Yeah, <laughs> very different traditions. Uh, so it's kind of fun. Uh, okay. Well, uh, that basically does it for this edition of the Beervana podcast. All right. Well, let's... Get out of here, then. Yeah. So, well, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Those of you listening through the All About Beer uh, universe of podcasts or listening to us directly, thank you very much. Um, you can find Jeff, of course, blogging at Beervana. He blogs at All About Beer. He writes for All About Beer. He tweets at, at Beervana. Um, I uh, blog uh, very occasionally at Beernomics. But still blog from time to time. But I still blog from time to time. I tweet at at Beeronomics. More uh, regularly? I'm more regularly. Um, I tweeted something about Bibles not being... I saw that. <laughs> and, and tagged you. Um, most importantly, however, you can give us your feedback, your questions, your comments, uh, your um, relationship advice uh, requests <laughs> at, <laughs> at the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com or, or visit the Beervana blog Facebook page is a good way to get in touch uh, and send us your comments, please. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So uh, we both have the same beer. It's... We we do. It's the Brewery Yard Stock Pale Ale. Thanks to Ron and Mike uh, for um, uh, sharing us their thoughts uh, and sharing us the beer, actually. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Thanks for sending it along. It was yeah. really a treat. Yeah. It was delightful. So, uh, so would you, Jeff? Ah, cheers. <laughs> this is a nice English beer, so cheers. Uh, cheers, mate. <laughs> <laughs>